Hello and welcome to the 16th episode of Interrobang Podcast, produced by Interrobang Books in Dallas, Texas. On this week's episode, we have a bookseller conversation between Shipping and Returns coordinator Tyler Heath and myself, in which we talk about some great novellas you should read this summer. You'll also hear about some of the exciting events we'll have in the store in the coming weeks. Remember, you can support the store 24-7 by shopping on our website, interrobangbooks.com. There, you'll also find new releases, articles, and book recommendations. Somewhere between the short story and the novel is the novella, a literary form that doesn't get a lot of attention in the United States. I sat down to talk with fellow bookseller Tyler Heath about this strange and beautiful form, and some of our favorite novellas you should take a look at this summer. Tyler Heath, welcome to Interrobing Podcast. Thank you, Jack. Glad to be here. To start us out, Tyler, let's define what we're what we mean when we say novella. Yeah, so a novella is typically, you know, too long to be a short story and too short to be considered a novel, although some novellas are printed with the word a novel on the front cover. Typically, a novella is going to be between 40 pages and 120 pages, so somewhere within that range. There's a, there's a lot of gray area. So with that gray area in mind, what are some of the like common characteristics of a novella that would set it apart from like a novel, for example? Sure. So a novella in this sort of traditional sense is a work that can be very focused and concentrated on typically one event. It focuses a lot on character development, and it all is leading to one sort of essential conflict, and the resolution happens fairly quickly after. There's not a lot of room for windy narrative. It's more of a sort of meditation on one subject. So there's a unity to the novella that you might not find in a novel, but also a level of detail or a level of of development that is impossible in a shorter work like a short story. Yeah, yeah. I think there's, there's a certain concentration that comes with a novella, which is sort of nice for a writer to be able to uh, dive deeply into one topic. So for interrobangbooks.com, you wrote a featured article about the novella. Can you tell us a little bit about that article? Yeah, uh, I was happy to happy to write this article, and I sort of talked about the uh, challenges facing the novella as a form, why readers may have not gone into um, novellas as an obvious selection for them. Uh, one of the things that I mentioned was just sort of the, the market side of it, the economic side, which is, you know, novellas are typically, you know, $16 each, which a lot of times is the same as a new trade paperback. And as we mentioned, the page count, so maybe 70 pages, and then you've got that against a novel that might be 200, 250. Um, it's sort of the, you know, the whole more bang for your buck. People might want to invest their money better. I would put better in quotation marks, right? If, um, if you could see me. I also talked about the gravitas of finishing a large novel. In the article, you'll see I gave the example of Infinite Jest, David Foster Wallace piece that's like a phone book, essentially. And, you know, you talk to people who have finished it and you have this, you know, mad respect for them for being able to finish this massive work. Whereas finishing maybe a 40-page novella, you know, you tell someone you finished that and they might look at you sort of like, oh, okay, great. There's, there's not as much pride maybe that comes with finishing a novella as there is with a novel. 
In your article, you also give a, a number of examples of novellas that you've recently read that you really enjoyed. And you have a couple of them that you want to share uh, on the podcast today. So what's that first one? Yeah, I want to start with uh, Andre Barba, his called Such Small Hands, novella translated in 2017 through Transit Books. The cool thing about this guy, Barba here, is that he's a real master of the form. This has sort of become his chosen form to work in. So Transit also published um, a book called um, The Right Intention, which is actually a collection of four of his novellas that sort of correlate back to each other. But Such Small Hands is a work that's printed on its own. The nice thing about novellas is you can read them in one sitting. It's a really cool reading experience. And I did that with Such Small Hands. It's really hard to put down. And the idea is that this... um, you know, the main character, seven-year-old uh, Marina, her parents have recently died in a tragic car accident, and she's sent to an orphanage. Barba is very good at sort of the strange and the surreal. He places Marina against the all-girl sort of orphanage, and it becomes us versus her. And the whole book, as I talked about, you know, novella leading up to one sort of moment is them leading up to Marina inventing this game. And in this game, you really see her sort of desperation for love and acceptance that she has not been able to receive from the orphanage and obviously without parents. And it's a really beautiful and just sort of desperate coming together at the end with this with this game. I was extremely impressed with how tightly wound this is. So something that you discuss in your article is the prevalence of the novella in translation. So other nations, other countries around the world, uh, and other uh, literary traditions value the novella a little bit differently. Where is Barbara coming from, and how does the how does this work in translation function differently than if it had been written in English, for example? Translated works are essentially two different works. One's written by Barba, the other is uh, this is translated by uh, Lisa Dillman. In other cultures, the novella is valued as, like I said, as its own work. I think it's sort of an American virtue to sort of, I don't know, biggie size, sort of to make things large. You think about any sort of form of art, sort of uh, the, the American just great expressionist painters, Ruthko, Pollock, they're big, where we don't give a lot of emphasis on the small, the minute. Um, so I think working in translation is, is, is simply, you know, it's appealing to a Western market that wouldn't have otherwise sought this work out. Going back to your article, you bring up a work in translation, let's a short novel, maybe a novella by uh, Masatsuku Ono, uh, who came to the store a few weeks ago and was actually on Interrobing Podcast. Uh, his book, Line Cross Point, uh, is a great example of uh, a novella that was published in Japan and it was published serially uh, over the course of a number of different, uh, over the course of a few months in a literary magazine. Another Japanese writer who's, of course, internationally acclaimed is uh, Haruki Murakami, whose first two books, uh, Hear the Wind Sing and Pinball 1972, were recently published in, in translation in the United States for the first time. These are two books that are, as they appear uh, you'll you'll sometimes see this in paperbacks and in, in hardcovers, where if it's two no, two novellas specifically, they'll be published together. But as a kind of funky formal innovation, uh, you you used to see this a lot with Pulp Fiction. They actually flipped the book so that on one side of the cover, you know, you'll see one novella, and then you actually physically flip the book over and you see the other novella, and they're published. You know, one is published upside down per se. So the first of these two novellas here, The Winsing, it's literally the first story that Murakami ever wrote. Uh, he, he literally sat down one day and just and he told himself that he was going to write a novel. And he sat down and wrote this book, this novella here, The Winsing. It's a fascinating snapshot of the early 
Murakami, in that you see some of the you see some of the characteristics of his later work. So you have an unnamed narrator, for example, who in some ways serves as a stand-in for Mur- Murakami. has number has a number of the same uh, features or characteristics of Murakami. So his perception, his interpersonal dynamics, like the way that he empathizes with others, is very familiar to any reader of Murakami. But something that's really fascinating about both of these books, but specifically here, The Winsing as a novella, is it's is it as Tyler you mentioned earlier, because it's a shorter work, it's much less plot driven than other works. It's much more of a character study, specifically for the relationship between the unnamed narrator, the eye of the story, and this fascinating character named Rat. So Rat is this guy that the narrator meets in a bar one one year when he was in college. And the the book describes a summer that they two spend together going to bars and meeting girls and so on and so forth. And Rat shares a number of characteristics as well with with the young Mirakami in that he's an aspiring writer, uh, some undisclosed lady troubles throughout the book. But something that's fascinating about the interaction between I, the narrator, and Rat in this book is how generally there is this uh, forgotten class of men in in Japan, especially in the in the 1970s and 80s, who are these college educated, highly educated men who are quite lonely, who live in this in an isolated world of industrialization and post industrialization. And how these two men are trying to find any sort of connection with anyone around them. And the connection that these two find together through their mutual love of pinball, which serves as the function of the second book, they find a companionship in one another and in, in, some, of the, in some of the strange women that they meet uh, during the summer. Uh, but ultimately, they both are left, as they go their separate ways after the summer's end, they're both left in that same state of loneliness and that same general lack of ambition that define them at the start of the story. It's really fascinating early work by Mirakami. So just as in Hear the Wind saying uh, the, the book is a lot about character, we also have Cove, which is the second novella that you wanted to talk about. Yes, this is uh, Cove. It's by Kenan Jones. It was originally published by uh, Granta, and then Catapult republished it as this beautiful book on board. The premise of this piece is that a man goes at sea to spread his father's ashes, but ends up getting struck by lightning and wakes up paralyzed and has to find a way to get back to the shore as he's gone completely off course. And sort of like I was talking about earlier is the novella being a meditation. That's absolutely what Jones does with Cove. It's a very deliberate and slow moving novella. Although it's short, the writing is just a true immersive experience. I really thought about Paul Harding's Tinkers, which uh, won the Pulitzer a few years back, in sort of the images of the natural world and specifically lightning. Uh, Harding talks about his, uh, in the book, one of the characters' father has seizures. He compared the seizures to lightning. And that sort of beautiful lyricism about lightning carries throughout Cove. It's a really sort of dreamlike piece, kind of in a daze. At times, it's sort of difficult to follow, not because he's trying to be confusing, but just the idea of waking up after being struck by lightning would be confusing. And I think that's paralleled really nicely here. Um, So it's a lot of sort of in the tradition of Hemingway, Old Man of the Sea, that sort of short work, sort of man against nature, but he's also thinking and piecing together his family life. And he sort of discovers through memory that he has a wife who's pregnant and he's trying to get back to her. There's also a, a child voice and a father's voice that figures throughout here. So it's very much 
much about family as well. I couldn't get over the writing of this one. I'm very impressed with him. This is the first piece I've ever read by Kenan Jones, but I'm looking into his other his other work. His most well-known work is The Dig, which is about badger baiters. Could you call it an allegory? Does it have like some allegorical elements with a resonance that carries a lot of meaning? Absolutely. I think that's what Jones does is, and he's talked about his you know use of allegory and he wants to use the natural world as sort of um, a way for us to navigate seeing ourselves. And he wants his readers to be very intuitive, which I think you have to be reading um, a work that's this sort of sparse. So the final book that we'll talk about is a book that I came across a few years ago when I was in school. Uh, I came across this this old, like, ratty version of The Fox by D.H. Lawrence, which is one of his best-known novellas, in part because when it was originally published back in uh, 1922, I think, the book was kind of scandalous in the sense that it didn't depict anything explicitly. There were, there was, like, no explicit sex, explicit violence, or anything along the sort. But because of its themes of feminine sexual liberation that were at the time, even the hint of female independence or female sexual independence, even the hint of that was scandalous for uh, readers in the 1920s, especially in England. The Fox is a heavily metaphorical book. That's what most people remember it as, uh, specifically centering around the image of the literal fox. So there are two women who are living together on a farm in World War I. And the two ladies, their names are Banford and March. Banford and March are working this farm together. They're, they seem to be quite happy. But then one day, a literal fox arrives on the farm and starts to molest their livestock, their their chickens, their cattle, and their sheep. And while Banford is happy to try to kill the fox to get rid of the fox, Marge seems less willing to get rid of the fox for some reason. Shortly thereafter, a man arrives on the farm, a young man who seems to be kind of innocent at first. His name's Henry. Uh, he arrives on the farm, and something of a of a an implicit love triangle exists between the three of them, with fascinating dynamics of the, these two women who share a level of intimacy that is kind of un, unknown. It's kind of ambiguous to the reader how what is their relation before the arrival of Henry, but then when Henry arrives, it becomes very clear that there is a level of jealousy between the two of them for not only for Henry but also for each other which brings up a number of really interesting questions of female independence, of what it means to be feminine, how female sexuality and male sexuality are sometimes at odds and sometimes coherent with one another. But in the end, like with Cove, it's really D.H. Lawrence's prose that creates an immersive experience for the reader that draws you and you become so ingratiated with the characters of Benford and Marsh and how their personalities jive and don't jive. You become so attached to them as characters and so invested in the farm, in the setting, which never changes throughout the story, that the heightening tension throughout the story draws you in. Like many of these books, you can read the entire book in an afternoon, but that afternoon will be one of the longest, most engrossing of your life. Uh, it's it's really a must-read for anyone who's interested in modernist early 20th century literature. I like that you mentioned the ambiguity because I think with these small forms, the authors are going to have to leave something out. And that's, I mean, that's how our lives are, really. You know, we never really get the full story. We're always having to sort of imply and make inferences. And I really enjoy that. There's a mystery to it. The unsaid is very important in novellas, I think. And in considering the question of why read a novella, why not spend about the same amount of money and buy a book that will ostensibly be better economically or be more efficient investment of your time. 
Novellas kind of capture something that we all experience all the time, which is that very brief glance into a complex series of relationships, a complex person, a complex situation. And because of its brevity, the novella, like you said, necessarily leaves out so much, but a skillfully executed novella hints at so much and uh, gives you a sneak peek into maybe the nuances, the nuances of everyday life. The novella might capture that better than a short story and better than a novel, and therefore really warrant our serious investment in reflection. Yeah, and I'm always just interested in restrictions. I enjoy seeing writers work in a smaller amount of space, and I just kind of want to say, you know, show me what you can do. And I think that's what the novella does. Tyler, thanks for giving us your time on the Terrapin Podcast. Thanks. You can find Tyler's featured article about novellas, as well as all of the books mentioned in our conversation, on our website, www.interrobingbooks.com. Next, here are some of the great events happening in the store in the coming weeks. This Saturday, June 2nd at 7pm, we'll have award-winning food blogger Clotilde Dussalier here in the store to talk about her new book, Tasting Paris, 100 Recipes to Eat Like a Local. The following Tuesday, June 5th, author Kevin Powers will read from his powerful novel of the New South, A Shout in the Ruins. The event starts at 7 p.m. Sci-fi author Amber Royers will be at Interrobang on Thursday, June 7th at 7 p.m. to discuss her space soap opera, Free Chocolate. And last, but definitely not least, Interrobang Books is honored to host Andrew Sean Greer, winner of the 2018 Pulitzer Prize in Fiction for his novel Less, on Monday, June 11th at 7 p.m. Please join us for this incredible and unique event. Remember, you can find out about these and all of our other events on our website, interrobangbooks.com. That's it for episode 16 of Interrobing Podcast. New episodes of Interrobing Podcast are posted every other week, so be sure to follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. The podcast is produced by Interrobing Books in Dallas, Texas. Our music was composed by Carlos Guajardo. I'm Jack Freeman. We hope to see you in the store soon. Have a great week and read fearlessly. Fearlessly.